Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. Happy New Year. I'm John Hall. Resolve to do more reading and travel, pandemic permitting, this year. To help you get excited about both, I'm joined by Tim Webb and Stephen Beaumont, two journalists who are also the authors of the World Atlas of Beer. We're talking about the book, Beer Destinations, and the constantly changing landscape of styles. But first up, we're able to bring you this show every week, thanks to these sponsors. This dry January, party on all month long with Athletic Brewing Company's great-tasting non-alcoholic craft beer. Their full lineup of craft styles lets you drink up and stay dry while keeping things fresh. And with brews starting at only 50 calories, you can stick to your resolutions all while saying cheers. Join the party at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. Plus, new customers can get 10% off with code BEEREDGE10. And we're also brought to you by NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz, or you can find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. A lot of experiences are lost in the digital age. We get so accustomed to seeing places virtually on a screen or reading pieces built for short bursts that when a book like The World Atlas of Beer comes along, we should all take notice. This third edition is completely revised, and authors Tim Webb and Stephen Beaumont take us on a tour of the world through its beer culture. This isn't a travel book per se, but an examination of what each country has created in the brewing space, what it aspires to be, and what we can expect or look to appreciate when we visit for ourselves. The authors are proper writers and travelers, and their collective knowledge, inquisitive nature, and discerning palates are evident on each page. Tim Webb spent six years on the board of the Campaign for Real Ale, you might know it as Camera, where he ran Britain's National Beer Festival and co-founded Camera's publishing company. He's written The Good Beer Guide Belgium continuously since 1992, and he's won award for beer writing in four different countries. Stephen Beaumont is the author or co-author of 10 additional books about beer, including The Beer and Food Companion and two editions of The Pocket Beer Book. He's also been a contributor to many others. He's hosted tastings, dinners, and educational events around the globe. Go get a copy of this book. The World Atlas of Beer should be in your collection and well thumbed through before you put it back up on a shelf for later reference. What makes this book special is not just the country entries, but the included maps, the sidebars, the photos, and the graphics. Digital can't compete with that on this scope, and getting lost in the pages for a while is a great vacation for the brain as you plot out your next real trip for beer. Via Zoom, Tim spoke to me from the UK and Stephen from Canada. Here's our conversation. How difficult is it to distill down the world's brewing scene into a book like this? Like, are I there mean, any easy parts? You, John, you know well how much craft beer has exploded all around the world. So, I mean, it, it's a self-answering question, isn't it? it, it it's a massive, massive topic to cover. Um, but the advantage that Tim and I have is that having been doing this since about 2010, 2011, we've gotten very proficient at getting to the heart of the matter, um, cramming as much possible information as we can into the book and, and hopefully making it readable and enjoyable at the same time. Yeah, I think it's um, one of the things I do in Europe uh, because we've got about 50 countries in Europe and they are at different stages of development as beer countries. Uh, most of them are getting pretty advanced now. And I look at it and I think how much is happening in your country, uh, partly historically, but increasingly at this time and in the last couple of years, that's how much space you're going to get. And so it varies between Belgium, Germany, Czech Republic, UK, where there's obviously lots of stuff going on. 
You're then confronted with places like France, which has not got as big a heritage, but has got loads of stuff going on. And then you find other countries where you have to sum them up in a sentence because although they're doing quite well compared to how they were historically, that's they're not contributing much overall at the moment. You know, this, this, yeah. this is the second time that Tim's mentioned that he's in Europe, and I just have to re remind him that he's no longer in Europe. He's actually in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's still, a, still a sore point. <laughs> I like we're the, the to, we're striving for accuracy and yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to becoming the 51st state of America. <laughs> I think there's a line at this point, um, both to get in, but also to get out. <laughs> so 51, you might not get, but you know, you could be 48 all over again. Yeah. Um, there's so Stephen, you're in Canada. Um, uh, we've established that Tim is, uh, is in the UK, not Europe. And I've been talking a little bit uh, to, to, to folks about uh, the Canadian Beer Cup that's coming up, and uh, you're the, the the driving force behind this, and it's it, 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 it's it's really set up to be, I, I think, a fun and premier event to showcase great Canadian beer. And after you asked me uh, to, to do this, um, I realized, and I've been talking with other folks about it, that we don't actually know, if you're not in Canada, if you're not from Canada... Um, a lot about the beer in your country. And so when you were putting that chapter together in the book, knowing the source material as well as you do, where did you start with, okay, this is how I'm going to present Canada to a global audience in, in, in book form, you know, what got in, but you know, what did you have to make the decision of letting people just kind of come and discovering it for themselves? because it didn't fit in the pages. Well, this is one of the places where COVID actually worked a bit in my favor. Um, I, like everybody else, I've been more or less stuck at home for the last two years. And what that has done for me is it's, it's forced me to kind of rediscover my home country and, and all the beer that's going on here. Um, and not that this came as a surprise to me, but, you know, it really hammered home the realization that, this country has evolved spectacularly in terms of its craft beer scene. Um, you know, it surprises people when I say not only are there more breweries per capita in Canada than in the United States, but in point of fact, there always have been. I mean, I ran the numbers all the way back to the early 90s, and there have always been more breweries per capita in this country than in the U.S., um, what happened was that things were kind of staid and very conservative up here. We, we, we tend to be that way, Canadians. Um, and it's only really in the last 15 or 20 years that things have busted out up here and some extraordinarily creative brewing, um, some you know, really impressive stuff. And I, I basically just kind of said, look, this is the East, this is the Central, this is the West. And here's why it's exciting. Um, th you know, this is going on and, you know, there are cities in here that are every bit as good beer cities as any beer city in the world. Um, so it, it's, it's just kind of trying to get that message across again, in as few words as possible, because yeah. I don't have massive amounts of space, but, you know, just trying to try to, and I, and this is true also for places like Mexico, Brazil, uh, Ecuador, you know, a lot of the countries that I covered that people have no idea what's going on. Um, but Mexico is one of the most exciting beer markets in the world today. So it's, it's really about kind of getting that message across to people as, you know, this is not what you think it is. There's a lot more to it. What makes you say Mexico is as exciting as it is? That's an, it's another country that I just haven't spent much time in. The, the brewers in Mexico are spectacularly creative. Um, they really approach beer from a culinary perspective. One Mexican brewer told me, he said, we all learn to cook uh, at the, the hem of our mother's dress. So we, we approach brewing that same way, a very culinary approach, um, which is true largely throughout Latin America, in fact. 
Um, and they, you know, they're up to, uh, I think, 1,100, 1,200 breweries now. Um, a lot of really interesting stuff and ambition. Uh, you know, they're, they're small percentage of their national market. So they have massive uh, room to grow. And, and there's a lot of ambition down there to say, hey, you know what? We, we're going to overtake Modelo. We're going to overtake um, Dos Equis. We're going to, you know, obviously they're never going to, but their, yeah, their attitude is we want to take them on and, and prove that we can be as good as anybody in the world. That is a theme of beer that I, I, I see in this book um, and certainly in conversations as well of scrappy upstarts of David versus Goliath or, you know, use any sort of analogy that you want in there. Um, the two of you came across that, right, of with craft beer, with independent beer, with small beer, whatever uh, word we want to use, um, there is this there's a fighting spirit that exists alongside the creativity. Um, I think pretty much everywhere is, is that accurate? I think so. Yeah. I think it's, um, it doesn't matter whether you've got a country with a, a hugely well-established heritage beer culture. And I'm thinking of Germany, for example, um, neighboring, you have France, which I'm going to mention again, where, which has just overtaken both Germany and the UK in having the most number of breweries in Europe. It's uh, heading up around 2,300 at the moment. What you see is that they're very, very different beer scenes. Uh, in Germany, the craft brewers are trying to emerge from within a strongly beer-focused culture. In France, they're, they're growing, they're, they're um, painting on a, a bare canvas. And Yet the spirit that you can see a spirit shared between the German brewers and the French brewers. Um, they obviously don't get together because they're German and French and you know what you never would. But uh, if they were to, I'm sure they'd find a lot in common. Sorry, I'll get, I'll get into trouble for saying that. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it's, it's a commonality across, I think, uh, different nations, different languages. You're seeing the same people in their local cultural setting. The culture of beer especially in established brewing countries, um, Germany, Belgium, UK, um, a lot of those, a, a lot of, I guess, what we all as, as beer drinkers think of the beer culture. So when somebody says to me, okay, you know, beer in, in, in Great Britain, I'm immediately going to think of Cascale. And I don't know if that's good or bad because there's so much more that's happening in there right now, uh, in, in that scene right now. Um, but it seems like the two of you in putting this book together, um, acknowledge those initial thoughts and then build out from there and bringing in new things. And I'm wondering how you were able to experience, you know, or, or, or put together the cultural aspect of it, you know, starting in one place in a, in a time of history and then seeing the trends emerge or seeing, you know, the, the, the story sort of unfold. Um, if there's a, I don't know if there's a good example of that, of starting someplace and then winding up at the end on a pretty you know, fun cultural journey. Well, I think that the, um, you know, prior to COVID, of course, Tim and I both traveled extensively as much as we possibly could to see firsthand as much as we possibly could. But we also, we know people all around the world and we use them as valuable resources. Um, you look in the acknowledgements page at the back of the book and there's a laundry list of names. And these are all people who are in these countries and they're part of their beer cultures. And so they're on the ground floor and they're saying, oh, this is happening or this is happening. We have regular conversations with these people to help us understand that. Um, and I think that, you know, a, a lot of one of the themes that we keep coming back to in this book is how um, uniquely each country is developing its beer scene. You know, often alongside a national style, a national beer style that you know nobody ever kind of predicted that this was going to be a new cool style of beer uh, to enter the world. But here it is, the Catarina Sour coming out of Brazil. 
um, you know, these wonderful, wonderful low alcohol beers um, that they brew in Australia that no one's really aware of how good the Australians are at cramming a lot of flavor into a three or 3.5% alcohol beer. So it, it's, it's that aspect of it that I think we have to continue to return to because let's face it, you can brew any beer anywhere these days. You can do, you don't have to go to Italy to drink an Italian grape, um, uh, grape ale. Yeah. Uh, but if you do go to Italy, you're going to taste them at their best. And that's the key, right? It's, it's, there's a reason that the um, Mexicans do uh, a mole flavored imperial stout better than all the American imitators because they know that those spices better. And the Italians know these barrels and these musts and all the things that they go into the gray bales. And they're just really good at doing it. Is yeah, there? Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to come at it from a slightly different angle. I mean, you, you would, I mean, I think every country is different and you have to write about every country uh, in its own right. Um, the country I find the most difficult to write about is the UK, where, as you said, John, pe people think of the UK and they think of Cascale. Yeah. Um, actually, if you look at the UK in another way, a lot of the beer styles that brewers, craft brewers internationally have been riffing off for the last 20 years um, had their origins in the UK. So you get the pale ales and the IPAs and the ports and the stouters and sometimes barley wines and scotch ales and stuff. All around the world, craft brewers are making excellent examples of that. Here in the UK, what we seem to be doing at the moment is creating imitations of New England IPA um, and, and, and doing strange variations on a sort of pan-European fruit beer and this sort of thing. You'd expect this to be the place where the really great IPAs are made in the most authentic way. And, okay, there are beginning to be a few that are around. Uh, but we haven't really grasped that. And it's this, this whole thing about the, the craft beer, what I call counter-revolution. Um, it feeds off itself and it's wheels within wheels and circles within circles. And uh, it'll be interesting to see when it, gets set, when it settles down, because I think at the moment it's still in primary fermentation. When it settles down, it'll be, it'll be great to see what beer cultures we're left with that will be logical for the next half century or so. Have you found that when it comes to the UK or Germany, um, that a lot of the newer brewers are trying to run away from history rather than embracing it? I, I think yes and no. I think okay. certainly in the UK, what, one of the interesting things you find is that if you've got a cluster of uh, youngish, meaning under 45, uh, craft brewers who are associated with craft brewing, not with local production of Cascales. They will often speak very highly of Cascale. And when you say, well, the, why don't you make one? They, they just change vote fast and they say, there's no margin in it. <laughs> we can't make money making Cascale, therefore we don't. But that doesn't mean we, we don't hold it in extremely high regard. And that's quite a difficult thing to put across to the more old-fashioned brewers who see them as people who are just trying to ruin the beer culture. Um, and there are kind of equivalents of that in Germany, uh, where, the, where the, the new brewers of craft ales will often hold some of the lager styles in very high regard and say exactly the same thing. We haven't got the equipment. We haven't got the um, marketing. We haven't got the time to create these excellent, quite simple beers that have been quite elaborately made. So it's, um, yeah, it's a different, diff difficult thing to encompass in 2000 words, but it's, um, it, 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 yes, it is. In answer to your question, yes, it is what, what, what I find. Culture and, and is just, built. No, just, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So if I just add to that, um, if you jump across the border into the Czech Republic, uh, you see, again, this, this huge wave of new breweries opening after the Czech Republic being very staid, very unchanging for a long time, basically catching up to all the deficiencies that were foisted upon it during communism. Um, but these new breweries, the first thing they do is they brew a Svetli Leshak, and then they'll play around, but they have to respect, they feel they have to respect their traditions first, then they can come up with a Czech IPA. 
But the first thing is to you know get those those fundamental beers done, and and then you you can go on from there. Culture seems to be one of those things where you can recognize it as it's happening, or at some point you look back five ten years and you say, okay, boy, that's that that's what we've accomplished. That's that's what we've built. Are you finding that brewers and some of these emerging beer countries right now, you know, where uh, there is growth, where there is innovation, are the brewers that you're talking with, are, are they paying attention to what they're building right now? Or are their heads just down doing the hard work, waiting to pop up and eventually see what, they, what they've made? I, I think it's a bit of both. Okay. Um, I take a, a, a good example of this is Poland. Now, Poland emerged from behind the Iron Curtain, um, and it emerged quite rapidly into two different beer cultures, uh, which, which were kind of the wrong way around. The, the old people stuck with the Polish type of blonde lager, which was almost as good as Czech, but not quite. Um, young drinkers were actually drawn towards what in many other countries would be seen as very old fashioned types of beer. And so you see a, a Polish scene emerging um, actually, I've missed a bit out there, but you, you, the, the, the craft brewers start producing what all the American craft brewers are producing, what all the Scandinavian craft brewers are producing, etc. The next part that happens is that the younger drinkers find themselves being drawn to a very old, very old fashioned and quite Polish styles of beer. And so the craft beer scene is awash with innumerable variations on stout and porter. Um, they're awash with smoked beer of any description. They'll smoke anything in Poland and beer is no exception. Um, and even lighter beers like Rodzisk. This has kind of become part of the background of what is really becoming one of the most interesting craft beer scenes in Europe. And I don't think anybody planned it to be that way. It's, it's just how things are evolving. And if I, if I could take you back um, down under Australia, yeah, Australia and New Zealand, um, they they effectively have to be aware of what they're doing. They can't just put their heads down because they tried that once and they failed miserably. Both Australia and New Zealand had early craft beer scenes that crashed and burned spectacularly. So when they reemerged, they kind of reemerged as with a new sense. Um, the idea of indie beer, Independent Brewers Association, that was pretty much born in Australia before it was embraced by other brewers organizations around the world. Kind of is no longer craft. Now we're talking about independent. Um, so they they really are very conscious of what they're creating and, and what their market is in both countries, because if they, they feel if they fail to do so, they're just going to be repeating history again. There's a lot of this conversation of you know, independent and ownership. And, and I know people in and around the beer industry are uh, often talking about it and passionate about it. Are, 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 did you find examples anywhere in the world where the consumers by and large, like actually care? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Australia the consumers care. Um, and that's because the brewers have done a very good job of um, putting across that message. Uh, they actually have an indie beer day in Australia, um, which you know it, it's it's been successful. It's still very useful, um, but it's been successful and uh, it, it's been embraced by the consumers. Um, as, as well as by the producers. So, but other than that, I, I think you're, you're stretching it a little bit to think that do consumers really, really care? There's a small number of consumers who are aware of these things, these, you know, company takeovers and that type yeah. of thing. But in general terms, I think people care what's in their glass more than, you know, who created it. Yeah, I think I think I mean you got to remember, John. I come from a consumer background. I, I all of my writing has been right from the word go from the consumer perspective. I was on the national executive campaign for Real Ale, which is one of the biggest and oldest consumer groups uh, in the world. Um, and and that this is my angle. But I think one thing that's true is that most consumers haven't a clue who makes their beer. Um, right. They are led by the flavor. They're led by the taste. They are also, sadly 
led by really good marketing lines. Um, and you see this time and time again, that particular products will take off and be enormously successful. And then they crash and burn six months later, because actually when you really know what you're tasting, they're not that good. They were just put across with a nice strap line. And it's, so it's, it's, it's not fair in a sense to believe that consumers are judging by being a bit brewery being independent or not, because they simply don't know. Um, I think the, uh, it's going to get more and more interesting because one of the things that's happened, there's several dynamics happening, certainly this side of the Atlantic, uh, a couple of the really, um, best known industrial lagers have started changing their flavors to being tasting more of beer. Um, which is a very cynical way of putting it, but <laughs> in particular, they've done a lot of work on Pilsner Urquell and it's developing a really almost a pastiche bohemian lager flavor um, and is very, very consistent now. And that's starting to impact on just ordinary beer drinkers who quite like ales and they're, they're finding Pilsner Urquell and they're saying, oh, gosh, hmm, yeah, hmm, yeah, something about that, isn't there? Now, if large breweries start to do that, it's going to really mess up the market. What they're tending to do at the moment is just create brands that sound a bit crafty or else take over a large craft brewer and make everyone believe they haven't changed it to cheaper hops or whatever. Yeah. And they're definitely all for a marketing spin. Um, if they were to do something different and start actually beefing up the flavors of different beers, that would start to get seriously interesting. Um, and it runs hand in hand with their fundamental issue, which is that all around the world in all the major markets, uh, the global brewers are seeing a gradual fall in interest in their top brands. And that's not going away. So they're relying on the small breweries, the independent breweries to make beer sexy again. It's the one part of the beer market that's growing, uh, apart from no alcohol beers. Uh, and and there is becoming this strange interdependence between the biggest and the smallest, because the smallest can't get to market without the big guys, and the big guys aren't going to get innovation and kudos without the small guys. More in a minute. But first, thanks to the companies that support Drink Beer, Think Beer. This dry January, party on all month long with Athletic Brewing Company's great-tasting non-alcoholic craft beer. Order yours at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. Plus, new customers get 10% off with code BEEREDGE10. And NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years to produce some of the world's finest hops. NZ Hops are like no others, unique in their flavors and aromas. Visit nzhops.co.nz to explore more. Now, back to the conversation. In thinking just about some of those brands that come out and a, a lot of the, I don't want to use the word innovation, but a lot of the, you know, the growth or the, the, the attention has been in some of these alternative alcoholic beverages. So hard seltzer, hard teas, uh, fruit punches, um, all sorts of, uh, of things like that, that might be around for six months and then they're gone. I'm thinking of Coors Light, hard seltzer, we hardly knew ye, um, you know, that, that makes some of these splashes. Those beverages have been leading a lot of conversations, at least in the business side of things, as well as the consumer side of things um, here in the U.S., are you seeing them take off in other parts of the world? It, they've, um, there was a theory that they crash and burn in Europe straight away because words like hard seltzer um, don't mean anything over here. Um, and because concepts like hard are not allowed to be advertised associated with alcoholic beverages and various other things. So, However, they are, they are doing their thing that if you, you know, put enough marketing effort behind something, you'll, you'll make it take off. And they are starting to take off. I'm, I'm very skeptical about their medium long term future. I'm also very concerned because they are, I'm, I'm not big friends with the anti alcohol lobby, but on this one, I might just join hands because the alcohol in these drinks is very cynical. It needn't be there to have to give the drink the flavor. The alcohol adds relatively little. And I think deliberately it's putting no flavor barrier between an alcoholic beverage and children. So it's potentially 
quite a dangerous use of alcohol. And I think there might be a bit of a backlash against this sort of thing, even at governmental level, because of that. And that I don't think has been factored in. But it, their inherent worth, I, I just don't see what they're actually about. It's just a very simple way of shoving alcohol down the necks of people who just want the buzz, really. I, I found myself in a very peculiar position recently of, of having to really do a deep dive into the seltzer market or more broadly, the flavored malt beverage or FMB market. Yeah. Um, which is in, quite interestingly, it's it's crashing and burning in the United States right now. Um, it has gone very, very quickly from stratospheric growth to um, rather deep, deep decline. Um, so that that's an interesting level. But what I've concluded is that really um, hard seltzers, they, they're part of what you were talking about, John, where uh, people were getting bored of the mainstream beers and they were moving somewhere else. Um, and maybe an IPA is not where they want to go because an IPA can be very challenging to a Bud Light drinker. But these hard seltzers offer another way to go. And as long as the hard seltzer market could keep introducing new flavors, new flavors, new flavors, that kept the growth going. Mm -hmm. But but once the consumer got tired of, oh, the, here's the latest flavor of the week, that's when the, the seltzer started to uh, to decline again. And and I think that there's this there's this thing in our culture, and it's it's in craft beer too. And we it's not just in the United States and Canada. It it is to a certain degree all around the world. What's new? What what is new and exciting? I don't want what I had last week. I want something new and exciting. And sometimes it's from flavor to flavor, as we saw with hard seltzers. And sometimes it's from category to category. It's like oh, there's a new um, packaged cocktail. So now that be becomes an alternative to beer. Yeah. And an alternative to, to seltzer as well. I think one of the reasons that the numbers have been declining is because of the RTD cocktails. Um, you know, truly is a good example of that. The, the Boston Beer Company, when you survey people and you say, well, you know, what is this? And you correctly calling it an FMB, um, you know, people say, I don't know, it's got vodka, right? And the consumer doesn't really know. And now that there are some of these RTD vodka cocktails out there uh, that do pack a little bit more of a punch, that's where people are flocking to. And now truly uh, has partnered with a or Boston beer has partnered with a distiller uh, to make truly you know, alcohol, truly vodka uh, flavored beverages. And it just sort of seems, I don't know, like the natural progression of things, but I don't, I don't quite know where it stops. Well, that was that was the theme of a keynote address I recently gave to uh, a virtual conference, um, mainly in the financial industry, was that the, the problem with seltzers was that they were misplaced. So everyone was thinking hard seltzers in terms of beer, when what we should have been thinking about hard seltzers in terms of ready to drink or RTDs. So now we have a different category we're talking about. So as you say, RTDs are still growing even as hard seltzer is collapsing. So it's it's no longer um, apples and apples. It's it's apples and oranges and peaches and pears. And <laughs> where does it all stop? There's, in, in thinking about, so the World Atlas of Beer, uh, before we started recording, you were reminding me uh, that this is completely revised. So um, anybody who has previous copies of this book, um, should be getting a new copy uh, because it is you know, all new information and 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 really as up to date uh, as, as it can be. And in thinking about that, when you're talking about IPA styles and, and the evolution of IPAs, I mean, we've seen various innovation come into styles over the last couple of years and then very quickly disappear. And in some cases, you know, we're not quite sure if something is going to stick or something is going to stick around um, or just simply disappear. When you're thinking about new styles to include in the book or new innovations to put into the book, are you trying to give it a little bit of time 
to grow and to establish itself before it gets into the book? Or were there some cases where you have some faith that we'll still be talking about this in, in a year or so? I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll pitch in here. The, um, I think we, I think we both got skepticism about the usefulness of certain types of innovation. Um, for me, it is very much about beers that have haze put into them, uh, beers that have fruit syrups put into them, beers that have made acids put into them. Um, I'm not sure they're going to last the distance. They're going to, they, they've been very popular over the last few years. So I will treat those a bit with kid gloves. On the other hand, occasionally I'll come across a style that I just think, oh, that's such a clever idea. Let's just give it a little bit of airtime here and see whether it takes off. Um, I've got quite a proud track record of virtually none of them taking off, but <laughs> <laughs> my favorite one of the lot, I'm going to give one more pitch here. In Brittany and France, they've been brewing beers with stuff called Blé Noir, which is basically, it's a black, I think it's a black buckwheat. And they produce this beer that is somewhere between a, a quite a dry Irish stout type beer and a Belgian style wheat beer. And I think it's got a really catchy character. And I, I wish the whole world had just sort of taken a careful look at it, gone along, stolen it, improved it, etc. as often happens. But I spotted it, it didn't go anywhere. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere. And I, I'm, I'm resigned to the fact it'll fail. But um, I don't know, it's, it's very, it's very you, you get a hunch after a certain number of years that something is catchy and is gonna take off. Uh, but hunches are hunches, not always reliable. Tim has been stumping for Bio de Blé Noir since the first edition of this book. <laughs> Still hasn't worked out. No. Well, I mean, a lot of it, though, is how much are brewers messing around in the space? You know, I, I, I keep coming back to Brute IPA because it was one of these styles where we could witness the birth of it and see its immense popularity as well as brewer confusion. And then it's almost complete disappearance you know, in the span of eight months to a year. And a lot of that was because of uh, consumer confusion, where for the beer drinkers that wanted to try IPAs, you'd walk into one brewery and this would be their version of a brute IPA. And then you'd walk into another and their version would be completely different. And it was tough for consumers to get a handle on you know, what the style should be to at least have benchmarks. You know, I mean, West Coast IPA or American IPA these days is is certainly all over the place. But by and large, I I hopefully know what I'm going to get when I when I order one of those, at least in some sort of parameters. But with Brute, that wasn't the case. It, it, with some of these emerging styles, are you finding that the creators are trying to communicate to other brewers what their hope or intent was, or does it just become a free for all? Yeah, Brute, Brute IPA was was a fascinating style because it came and went so quickly. I never actually yeah. got a chance to write about it. Um, <laughs> it, it and was, you're pretty prolific, so yeah, that's uh, yeah. It was such a brilliant, brilliant idea that never went anywhere. Um, I, I love the idea of the Brute IPA, and then brewers just couldn't figure it out. Uh, but yeah, we we do see. Uh, a lot of great ideas um, gestate, and then um, they seem like okay, they're going to bust out and, and go all sort all over the place. Um, and then, for whatever combination of reasons, whether it's consumer confusion, whether it's the lack of brewers really, you know, getting together on what the style means, it, it never happens. And there's the two opposites of this. Um, one is the um, Mexican uh, Imperial Stout, which I stumped up for in the second edition of the book and said, this is brilliant. It's going to be a great style. It's going to be Mexico's trademark style to the world. Um, and the Americans said, hey, we, we like this idea. We're going to start brewing it. So they, all of a sudden, you've got your Mexican cake. You've got the New Belgian uh, version. You know, all these uh, mole-inspired imperial stouts coming out. And the Mexicans just kind of said, yeah, okay, we'll move on. 
And I, I had this great quote from a Mexican brewer who said, when the Americans are finished playing around and they want to learn how to really do this, they can come down here and we'll be happy to teach them. Uh, wow. And the flip side of that was um, the Caterina Sour in Brazil, which is, I guess it, you could call it a cousin to the Florida Vice. Um, it, it's, it's a very, very fruit forward, um, slightly stronger than a Berliner Weiss uh, soured beer that's done in such a way that the fruit just bursts out in weird, weird and wonderful combinations. Um, and nobody saw it coming. It just all of a sudden was there and then it blossomed. And, and the first time I went down to Brazil to try these beers, I was hugely skeptical because I'm a kettle sour skeptic. But the, what the, the way the Brazilians were treating these beers was unique and just exciting. And I, I barely had more than half a dozen that didn't, I didn't find really interesting. There's been this. No, sorry, Tim. Go ahead. No, I think I think within this, there, there's there's another thing I see happening, happening very slowly. But I'd, I'd like to put a sizable amount of money on it happening, which is that there's there's innovation fatigue, and there there is an extent to which people are are, are actually fed up with everything changing all the time, and would be drawn. I'm pretty certain to classic versions of particular styles. Um, yes, okay, there's always going to be um, a place for perpetual innovation. Craft beer was probably a child of the internet, and the tickers have led the mentality of quite a lot of brewing. But at the same time, there's a lot of beer lovers out there who would like to buy serious beers. And I meet a lot of people now, just ordinary beer drinkers, where they just want to know which are the really, really good ones. And can we just keep buying those, please, and still have them in our cellars in five years' time, you know, fresh ones, in our cellars in five years' time? That, I think, is where the great markets lie. And we're seeing a little bit of that happening in the UK. Um, we've been playing around with IPAs, and there's starting to be two or three that are just they're hitting the supermarket shelves, not because they've got lovely-looking labels, not because they, they, they have great marketing claims, but because they're just damn good beers. And, and that, I think, is, is something that might emerge out of this in the future. I, I, I like that on a, a Zoom call full of writers, you're wagering large amounts of money that none of us have. So that was... Uh, <laughs> um, I was talking with brewers recently, though, about tail wagging the dog and vice versa of when brewers get really excited about a style the difficulty that it can be to bring the consumer along to you know, keep the beer flowing and then things in business. Um, are you finding in South America or in France with these two particular styles that, that you both had mentioned that the brewers are out there beating the drum, actively trying to get people to, 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 to understand their passion for these styles that they're making? That's a very interesting an, an, uh, analogy of South. Well, I know, thinking about South America and France, I, th I have a suspicion those two places are in the same place with regard to beer at the moment. Um, in and, and they, they, in a sense, they come from the same history. And and to do the history of France, beer in France, in a sentence or two, it used to be something that was only really found in the northeast and on the German border, specialist beers, and now. There is a virtually even spread across the whole of a huge country um, of the number of breweries that are there. And if you look at the map of the really good ones amongst those breweries, that's pretty evenly spread as well. It's still there's still more in the northeast and German border, but it's 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 a thing that's happening all over the country. And when I talk to French beer lovers and to small brewers in France, they will say that what they go out and say to the public is, "This is what we make." Uh, as beer locally. This is what this, our town does for beer. This is what our brewery in this town does for beer. And so the appeal isn't so much about a broad brush of, let's teach you about beer and these are the styles that we make. It's more, this is what you can do with beer. Look at this, it's just from a couple of kilometers up the road. Um, and I think there's a certain amount of that leading. Um, and I've forgotten your question now. <laughs> 
I mean, Stephen. So, so it, it's it's the Katerina Sours that you were talking about, and right? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Yeah. That's okay. Correct. So, are the brewers out there saying to the to 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 the customers like, "Hey, we're making these. We're really proud of these. These are born from here. You know, please drink them because we're excited to be making them." Or is it still just the niche craft drinkers and everybody else is going and drinking industrial Pilsner? Well, in a word, yes, the brewers are uh, beating the drum for these styles. Um, and this is this is where it's, it's interesting to look at craft beer history, because when I was still in university and craft beer was starting up in Ontario, the brewers understood that the only way they were going to sell their beer was by going out and basically hand selling it to each and every customer. Yeah. Um, and, and that's still the attitude of in, in these emerging beer cultures, because they're still small, they're still in the growing stages. Whereas I think a lot of uh, brewers in developed beer cultures, Canada, United States, UK, uh, Belgium, I think they've kind of forgotten that aspect of it. And there's this, this, uh, oh, well, we'll put this out and then people will buy it. Well, people still have to be explained. You know, I, I find this fascinating with hop varieties. If you go into an average bar, not a specialty bar, just an average bar, and you ask somebody sitting at the bar drinking an IPA about different hops, they may or may not know what a hop is. They may or may not know the names of a couple of varieties of hops. But that, you know, in the face of that, you've got these brewers bringing out um, hop-specific beers, and they're saying, "Oh, this is our new Centennial Citra hop, um, IPA." Yeah. And and drinkers are saying, "Okay, cool. I'm not sure what that means, but okay, that's fine." So I think that there's still there's a loss of of uh, some of that explanation in developed beer markets, but in the emerging ones, they're still at that point where they're going. We have to go out and we have to explain this to people one one person at a time. Yeah, there's a one of the, the so as I've been going through this book again, uh, one of the things that I that I've always been drawn to in beer books done this way is the inclusion of maps and being able to actually see there's a difference between scrolling on a phone or, or on a laptop and seeing a printed map on a book and the concentration of you know, like-minded businesses as uh, so the breweries or, or, or beer bars, you know, together uh, in, in one region to sort of show just how robust uh, it is versus on, uh, and, the case of the beer bars uh, where you have the entire U S mapped out, it is so shockingly sparse that I was troubled by it because we've seen the decline of the really good beer bars in the United States over gosh, probably the last decade or so in the rise of the tap rooms as well. Um, you know, the brewery tap rooms, you know, 9,000 breweries in the country right now and all of them, pretty much acting like a bar. Um, when we start to lose beer bars, do we start to lose beer culture? I think to a certain degree, yes. Um, you know, I would always rather go to a beer bar than a brewery tap room. Um, with no disrespect to the breweries, but, you know, I, I very seldom do I drink the same thing twice. So if I go to a beer bar, I have the option of having this and having this. When I walk into a bar, I'm not thinking about the first beer I'm going to have. I'm thinking about the third or fourth. And then I'm working backwards. It's like, okay, how do I drink beers to get to that beer so that I'm not destroying my palate along the way? Um, and, and that's what I really like about going to a beer bar. And if, if indeed, you know, the specialist beer bar becomes an endangered species, I think that we as a beer drinking culture are the losers in that. Yeah, Tim, I think what about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the great threat to beer bars uh, unseen is the supply chain. Um, 
you're 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 seeing certainly I don't, I don't know what it's like in the us but they certainly across europe the supply chains are being bought out by um large breweries usually sometimes medium-sized ones uh, sometimes just entrepreneurs and that it makes it quite difficult for bars to source good ranges of reliably independent and um you know, to be the best beer actually gets on the list rather than to be the beer owned by the people who own the distribution company. Uh, quite a lot of that is happening. Um, in the UK, it's slightly different because we don't really have a culture of beer bars where we had beer bars before. It's uh, been around a place selling eight or 10 or 12 cask ales, which means they're all in equally appalling condition. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so it hasn't really grown so much. Um, certainly, there's no absence of beer bars in Belgium. Those are definitely still growing. My impression in other countries is that is that they are growing where they didn't grow before. But I would expect, in the current state of beer culture, for there to be hundreds in places where there are currently dozens. And um, I think that is a that the whole distribution thing is a factor. Coming over the horizon, there will be the whole distribution thing with climate change mitigation and people looking very carefully at long lines, long supply chains of beer from brewery to uh, endpoint. And that's gonna be a different challenge. I should add, John, that I yeah. think that the, the decline of the beer bar is more or less a uniquely American phenomenon. Um, we're not seeing that happening in Canada. I have not seen that happening um, anywhere in Latin America. Um, and I've, you know, I've certainly seen all the social media posts about this. I mean, when, when the falling rock closed its doors, you know, a little yeah. part of, little part of me died there. Uh, so it, it's, it's tragic to see that happening, but it's not something that I would say, this is a global phenomenon. I'd say this is an American phenomenon. Well, leading by example yet again for all of the wrong reasons. Um, the other thing that I've struck in the book that I've actually been thinking a lot about is the non-alcoholic beer space. And it was nice to see uh, that get the mention in the U.S. chapter. And also kind of surprising because we weren't having that conversation, you know, certainly a decade ago when the first edition of this book came out. Um, and that it's it's risen to the level where we're talking about it here in the in, in the U.S. I think is, uh, is is pretty remarkable. Are 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 you seeing globally that some of these sober initiatives, some of these sober curious uh, drinkers, are catching on more and more? I, I think so. Steve. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, I don't I don't think that non-alcoholic beer is ever going to be as big as some people like ex-ABI CEO Carlos Brito has said it will be, uh, particularly not in North America. Um, but it's certainly, it, it's going to continue to grow. We now have um, breweries that are non-alcoholic specialist breweries. Um, and you know that, that would not have existed five years ago at all. So that's that's proof right there that this is something that's really truly happening. I, th I think it's I, I'm old enough to remember last time around uh, where you had these um, low alcohol, no alcohol beers that arrived were a great thing, hit the market and did a classic three year life cycle within three years. They, nobody's heard of them. Um, the difference between then and now, I think, is all down to the craft beer. Uh, movement in that people do expect beers to have flavor. People do, they, they've got a lot more techniques of not only just giving beers flavor, but also the clever stuff like giving a body to a beer that's got no alcohol in it. And because of these sm small scale techniques, um, <clears throat> there's a, the, the difference in the market this time around is that uh, there is a, it, it's 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 part of it at least is being flavor led, and if flavorsome non-alcoholic beers can develop and remain, I think they will get a permanent market because I think there is a genuine wish by some people some of the time 
to drink a beer that has no alcohol in it, but that is a decent beer. Um, I doubt very much it'll ever get into double digit percentage for the beer market. Um, in fact, it'll, I think it'll do well to maintain much more than 5%, but I, I think they may have permanence. Yeah. I, a lot of the ones that I've been having recently, um, they are, they're good in a pinch. And I think they, uh, uh, they sort of meet, meet the expectation of the, you know, of, of what they're, of what they're putting out there. But it's, uh, I, I was really just, I, I know since you all have been really focusing on globally, if uh, I just wanted to, to sort of hear your, your overall thoughts on that. Um, I've been asking folks who have come on the show. Um, there's a, there's a television program. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. It's called the good place. And there is a, uh, a scene in the show where you can walk through a green door and be anywhere at any point in history with anybody that you choose. And so if such technology existed on this plane of existence and you could walk through a green door as this conversation comes to a close and go to uh, any pub brewery anywhere on the planet um, with anybody that, uh, that, that you wanted alive or dead, um, where would you go and who would you be with for that first beer? Stephen, um, I, I, I'm torn between two scenarios. Um, one would be to go back to um, Britain in the 16 or 1700s, just to verify that beer being brewed back then wasn't nearly as good as we think it was. <laughs> um, and the other, the other part of me would go back a much shorter distance of time. Um, maybe back to the 80s or 90s so that I could um, have a few more beers with Michael Jackson um, who, and, and talk a little bit about how he thinks we've, we've dealt with his legacy. Because in many ways, I mean, when we did the first edition of the World Atlas of Beer, we were very conscious of kind of following in, in the path of Michael's uh, New World Guide to Beer. And uh, both of us having been friends of Michael felt a, a a lot of responsibility for doing that. And I, I'd love to go back there and, and say, okay, to think we think we've done a, a decent job. And, and what do you think of this hazy IPA anyway? <laughs> for me? Yeah. I would take, like to take the young Carlos Brito, um, probably at the same sort of time that I first went to it, to the Brooks Beatier Cafe in Bruges. And I like to sit him down, just having a chat with Jan de Bruyne and Daisy Klaas and uh, their, their barman at the time, who's, who's a pretty neat brewer now, Chris DeWist, uh, just chewing over the possibilities of beer uh, and opening his eyes so that the next 30 years of his life would have been spent differently. It's a very noble pursuit. Thank you. Um, Gentlemen, congratulations on a wonderful book. Uh, the World Atlas of Beer, The Essential Guide to the Beers of the World is available where all fine books are sold, uh, both in person and on the internet. But um, I, I, I'm still coming back to it and, and flipping through it and finding new things. And um, the photography is great and the, the, the breakout boxes uh, in, 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 uh, in each of the various countries uh, is really just filled with fun jaunty information that really i think is making me a better beer drinker and and, and certainly uh, more knowledgeable and i think it'll do the same for all of the readers so hope everybody goes out and buys multiple copies and gives them to all of their friends so congrats on a on a great book and thanks for being on the show this week thank you john it was it was a pleasure yep i i go with that entirely what country aside from your own do you want to visit in 2022 you can email me. It's John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at BeerEdge.com, or you can reach out on social media. I'm on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Beer Edge is also on all of the social medias at The Beer Edge. A reminder to join the Smoked Beer Conversation with other enthusiasts on the This Week in Rauk Beer Facebook page or on Twitter and Instagram at TWRaukBeer. And if you're a brewery or a company that wants to support the show and bring original content to the airwaves, you can help us out through advertising by reaching out to Liz Melby. She's at Liz at BeerEdge.com. And speaking of that, thanks to the companies who help keep us on the air. This dry January, 
Party on all month long with Athletic Brewing Company's great tasting non-alcoholic craft beer. Their full lineup of craft styles lets you drink up and stay dry while keeping things fresh. And with brews starting at only 50 calories, you can stick to your resolutions all while saying cheers. Join the party at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. Plus, new customers can get 10% off with code BEEREDGE10. We're also brought to you by NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. Final reminder, check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. New episodes come out weekly. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast drops on the 15th of every month. Back here, Nate Schweber performs our theme music. Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. Happy New Year.